this morning. I just want to share, like I said, a few testimonies of, of uh, not testimonies, but um, quotes from people talking about uh, in revivals of the past and uh, particularly about uh, manifestations, phenomena. And uh, one of them is a, a, a quote uh, from Wesley, John Wesley. And it was about uh, concerns that his colleague and friend and co-revival leader, the great evangelical revival of uh, um, 1700s in, under Wesley Whitfield in England. And uh, this is from Wesley's journal. He said, on Saturday, George Whitfield and I discussed outward signs which had so often accompanied the inward work of God. I found his objections were chiefly grounded on the gross misrepresentations he heard concerning these facts. I just want to point out, there's always gross misrepresentation. Um, if you listen to the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff, you would hear gross misrepresentations of what really characterized Toronto and Pensacola. Um, gross misrepresentations. And so this Whitfield was concerned about Wesley, that, you know, uh, he's, like I said yesterday, he's accused of having um, powder up his sleeve, so when he raised his hand, the powder would, would knock people out. And, and uh, he actually would go around and tell people, come out of those trees, because he's afraid that they'd fought, the power of God would come on them, they'd be knocked out, and then they'd fall out of the trees and hurt themselves. Uh, so he said, you need to come down out of those trees. Um, so anyway, he goes on, he says, I found his objection chiefly grounded on gross misrepresentations he heard concerning these facts. The next day, he had an opportunity of informing himself better, for no sooner had he begun to invite sinners to believe in Christ than four persons collapsed close to him. One of them lay without either sense or motion. A second trembled exceedingly. The third had strong convulsions over his entire body and made no noise other than groans. And the fourth convulsed equally and called upon God with strong cries and tears. From this time, I trust we shall all allow God to carry on his work in the way that pleases him. So you've got four, I mean, Whitfield he starts to give the invitation. Four people falls down. They've got all these varieties of experience from trembling, convulsing, crying out, moaning, and some just laying in peace. Um, in yesterday, I don't think I shared one of the things I want to share was a little more about the fruit of the revival, the, our, like our first great awakening. And it says, in one period of three years during the awakening, at least 30,000 were converted in New England. And in the same period, at least 50,000 were converted in all the colonies. A similar awakening today would have to result in more than 5 million conversions to reach the, or achieve the same percentage of the people that were living in the colonies at the time that were, were saved or um, came to the Lord. So five, if we had something like that today, it would be 5 million people being saved. This is what we need a vision for is millions coming to the Lord. That was a three-year period in a revival. Millions coming uh, to the Lord. Um, 
I wanted to read also a quote from um, James B. Finley. He was a Methodist uh, preacher. At the time that this happened to him, he wasn't yet a preacher. He was called to preach right after this happened to him. And uh, he became a circuit rider. And this is a quote from his journal about Cane Ridge. The noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers all preaching at one time, some on stumps, others in wagons, and one was standing on a tree which had in falling lodged against another. While witnessing these scenes, a peculiarly strange sensation, which I had never felt before, came over me. My heart beat tumultuously. My knees trembled. My lips quivered. And I felt as though I must fall to the ground. A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of mind there collected. At one time, I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment as if a battery of a 1,000 guns had opened upon them and then immediately followed shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. This was one of the greatest outpourings of revival in our country's history. It was a great impetus to revival that spread all over the South, and the Bible Belt really was, you might say the Bible Belt was born out of this revival. This was, and the Baptists call it the awakening of the 1800s. Um, I mentioned this yesterday, but it, uh, Dr. Lewis Drummond is my professor at the seminary, and in his lectures that I had at the Southern Baptist Seminary, he said that because of this revival, the Presbyterians doubled, the Baptists tripled, and the Methodists quadrupled. It is interesting that the Methodists embraced the most phenomena and had the most growth at the same time. The power of these meetings was in deep conviction, which produced some of the phenomena, and in other phenomena that so often accompanies the move of God, like falling to the ground, laughing, shaking, and comatose-like states. I get it mixed up because there's, I was talking to a leader, an apostolic leader in South Africa in uh, Pretoria. And uh, he, he was a colleague of, uh, he was a weightlifter. And when uh, Schwarzenegger, I forgot his first name, Huh? Arnold, yeah. He and Arnold were colleagues. Arnold was able to get out and was able to compete internationally, but before he could get out, the apartheid stuff happened, and he, he couldn't get out and participate. They were basically pretty much equal. And so this guy uh, later became this pastor and actually an apostolic guy, and he had so many stories to tell me about these amazing uh, experiences. One of them was a, an unknown, no one's ever heard of him, um, native of South Africa. And uh, he had this anointing. And he would baptize people, and they would go out in the water. And they would tear, carry him out of the water and lay him on the ground. If they didn't come, in, come to within a few hours, they carried him to the church and laid him down in the church. And uh, so... This one person 
this is where I get the two stories mixed up with Cane Ridge and this guy. This one person, he didn't come to for either eight or nine days, which means he had no water, no food, didn't go to the bathroom, was out. They got so concerned, they brought a doctor in to check him. The doctor said, I don't know how to explain it. He's alive, but he's not here. And after, is either eight or nine days, he came to, which is the longest I've ever heard of. The one that comes, and I get these two mixed up. In Cane Ridge, the record for people being out, and they had a wagon to go by, and if the people didn't come to after, you know, a certain period of time, they'd put them in the wagon, and they would take them to the place where they'd just lay them out in rows of the people who were, had been slain in the spirit. And, and we're not talking about being out for 30 minutes. We're talking about hours, and people would go look for the loved ones there. And the... <laughs> And the record, the record there was either eight or nine days. See, I get these two confused. Now, one of these guys, the guy that was out for eight or nine days in South Africa, when he came to, he came to with an extremely powerful anointing for healing. He's raised the dead, raised several people from the dead, and just has this miracle anointing that came to him once. Uh, he came to. And... Uh, then there was another guy, this, I'm trying to think, uh, I can't think of the guy's name right now, but I, I stayed in his home, talked to him, had a lot of interviews with him. But anyway, there was this uh, Zulu evangelist, and he had such an anointing for uh, miracles that when his meetings were over, they would take a two-ton lorry truck, loaded up with wheelchairs, crutches, all type of apparatus that people had had on their bodies. And his special gift was praying for people who had been affected by polio. And he would stand on one side and parents would be with the kids. And, and this, this man, I wish I could think of his name right now. Um, he told me, he said, Randy, I was at the meetings. I saw it with my own eyes. This is not a secondhand report. This is a firsthand report. And he said, this guy had such a strong and healing anointing that he would tell the parents, take the braces off the leg. And they said, if we do, he'll just fall. And he said, take the braces off the leg. And he said, I, you could see those little legs about that big around. They'd take the braces off, and they would, we went like this, and then they'd try to take a step. And by the time they'd got, they'd walk, and you could actually see the uh, muscles increasing, literally. It's like miraculous increase. And... Uh, uh, might as well tell the bad with the good. This guy had such anointing that he would see so many things happening that he couldn't go to sleep at night because of the adrenaline when he'd get into the meeting. So a well-meaning friend said, well, it wouldn't hurt if you just took a shot of whiskey to, to dial your, this is, you know, back then, just to calm you down. Well, ends up, the guy became an alcoholic and ended up uh, just losing everything, the ministry, the anointing, um, could be because of bad advice. Now, I don't understand that. All I know is there's a thing about grace, and there's a thing of responsibility, and there's a thing of the enemy trying to trap us. And, and, and I think that probably the guy was well-meaning, and he wasn't the enemy, but the enemy gave him an idea that wasn't, that wasn't good. 
Um, but there was a season before he just totally lost everything that God was, was still using him, even though now he had be, become alcoholic. And that's not the only person that in the history of healing revivals that struggled with, with alcohol. And, um, and, and so my Lutheran friends back in St. Louis, they would get on some of this information and they'd say, this proves that this cannot be God. And yet their main emphasis of the Missouri Synod Lutheran denomination is grace. Everything is grace. You can do nothing to earn. Everything is just divine initiative. It's got, everything is grace. Everything is grace until they can find some dirt on some Pentecostal or charismatic where, they're, where the, you know, they have fallen in some way. And then and it's no longer grace. It's, it's, it proves that, well, they, they can't be legitimate. Well, all it proved to me was grace. It was grace. And uh, uh, anyway, I wanted to read um, something else from um, Finney. How many of you have read any of Finney's works? Several of you. How many know who Finney is? Um, Finney, my professor, he wrote an autobiography, I mean a biography of Finney and Billy Graham. He wrote a biography over both of them. And he told me, he said, Randy, if Billy Graham and Charles Finney were living together at the same time, Finney's ministry would eclipse Graham's. He said, I, he said, I love both of them. Matter of fact, he, at the time I had him, he was the Billy Graham chair of evangelism at Southern Seminary. And uh, he respected both of them. He said, but there was the, the anointing on Finney was actually stronger um, but, and he lived in a very different time when Graham did, so he can't compare the numbers and things because of the modern transportation and all that they, all that they had. Uh, Finney led about a half a million people to the Lord when most of it was just going by horseback, and on, a lot of it was on the frontier. Um, and uh, he was very powerfully, uh, powerfully used. Um, and I mentioned, and I wanna, in a moment I want to get to his his quote, but I mentioned Canvas Lang yesterday, and I found that quote uh, that I've got here that's a little more detail. Remember, the Canvas Lang was the great revival under Whitfield in Scotland uh, that was the precursor to the Cane Ridge revival. And uh, uh, I just found, uh, I want to give a quote. It said, the Presbyterians had a prolonged communion service which would culminate once a year and last for three to five days. There had been five to six such meetings in Scotland where the fire fell, quote, fire fell, or where God would light the fire again. The, they were called the wild meetings. That's what they were called, the wild meetings, as they were called. Began in Ulster, peaking around uh, 1724. It was in these Ulster communions that we first have reports of people fainting, dead away, and being carried outside in a trance. So in the, the more or less the English uh, speaking in the history, uh, this was the first time they began to see this fainting away and being carried while they're having trances. The largest and most famous of these was held uh, later at 1742 at Cambus Lane. Estimates of the meetings ran as high as 30,000 people that attended. George Whitfield had just returned from one of his trips to America, and he preached with great passion and anointing. 
And here's the quote. Small groups of people under deep conviction talked all the night. Whitfield preached the Thanksgiving sermon on Monday, after which the people were reluctant to leave. No one could estimate the number of converted. Almost every conceivable physical exercise, including falling in a swoon, that's what we call slaying the spirit, uh, afflicted some participants. But in these three or four ways of revival, the huge rural gatherings, which all, with all the extreme physical exercises, dismayed or frightened possibly a majority of the Presbyterian clergymen. Canvas Lane was the focus of much of the controversy. Within nine years, 58 books plus endless articles either praised or condemned it. This was a forerunner of Toronto, Pensacola, Smithton, and they too created numbers, large numbers of books that was printed, both praising it and condemning it. Um, the local pastor was, was called McCulloch. He developed a questionnaire to defend what, would ha- what had happened. The effect, and the quote, the effects on the local congregation were lasting. Although the revival ebbed very quickly, conversions continued until 1748, but with annual decreases. Crimes, of all, crimes all but ceased in the immediate aftermath, but not for long. And approximately four out of five converts remained in the church for the next decade. Cane Ridge was the next canvas lane. Now that last, that second last sentence, approximately four out of five of the converts were still in church a decade later. Reveals that in the midst of all of this wildness, you ended up with better converts because Today, even with the best, with Billy Graham or any other of the famous evangelists in America, when we do crusades, only 6% of the people who come forward and sign a card end up in church. 6% versus 80%. And one year later, only a small percentage of that 6% are still in church. One year later where they had 80% still in church a decade later. I asked um, Anacondia when I was meeting with him in the uh, Del Central Baptist Church, which is the oldest Baptist church in Argentina, whose co-pastors, both with doctor's degrees, and teach, uh, taught at the uh, International Baptist Theological Seminary in Buenos Aires, and in Dr. Deiros, taught also at Princeton and at Fuller, which I think he still teaches at Fuller today and the Baptist Seminary. Uh, they told me that out of the numbers and the scores of thousands, sometimes 80,000, sometimes 55,000 converts in one meeting, one series of meetings, uh, protracted meetings under Anacondia, and 80% of them actually end up joining local church and staying faithful and... Um, uh, they, oh, and they said that several years later, they're still in church. So I asked him, I said, uh, Carlos, can you explain to me 
why in your crusades, and by the way, they did say some of the cities that he did his crusades in, by the time it was over, the number of Protestants in church doubled for the whole city. Because he had sometimes 55, 83,000, 55,000 uh, converts in one series of meetings. He also said it when I was talking about revival, it's very difficult to see it in America because Americans uh, aren't willing to pay the price. He said, I almost never had a breakthrough before 25 consecutive days in a row. And he says, what you're doing is you're preaching the gospel and coming against the demonic and healing the sick and coming against the demonic. And as you're doing that, it's like you're shaking the foundations of the kingdom of darkness. And he said, I don't know, it's not the same time, but it's almost never less than 25 days. And sometimes it took quite a bit more. Then all of a sudden, so many people have come to the Lord. So many demons are getting cast out. It's like the kingdom of darkness collapses and it's in confusion. And then the harvest comes. There's a massive uh, harvest. He said, you can't get Americans to go to protracted meetings that long. Now, in, in um, Argentina, uh, and I talked to the guy who managed Carlos Anacondia's crusades. Uh, we had lunch together one time. We were talking. And he said, uh, gold teeth became so common. And this man, and by the way, uh, Anacondia was not ordained. He was a layman uh, at the time, and he was a wealthy businessman, and he funded his own crusades with his own money. And uh, the church was quite weak then, and so the churches would shut down to come together for these crusades. And he also told me later, he said, it's not happening anymore because after his work and after revival, the churches had grown to thousands. And now they would not shut down to work together like they would when they were small. And it's, it's made it more difficult. So, um, so the, the, the director of the crusade, he said this. We had so many gold teeth. And by the way, most of these people coming were from the barrios, very poor areas. That's where the Lord told him to go. Go to the poor. And uh, they didn't have money to go to the dentist. And one woman was beat up by her husband because he was convinced she had prostituted herself to get the money to get her teeth fixed. But she got him to come to church, and when he saw what God was doing with others and heard the testimony, he deeply repented and got saved. Because at one point, he, he said, unless you had at least eight gold teeth that God had put in your mouth you couldn't give your testimony because there was too many people that had gold teeth as a matter of fact yeah gold teeth when when the gold started happening the gold teeth thing in toronto i was gone and i and then i heard it with a lot of my friends that all this gold teeth stuff was happening and i felt like i got left out and because I, I, I didn't know i didn't have any record of it so uh, I went back down to Brazil, and I was in the southern Brazil, and uh, this guy came up to me, this guy came up to me, the pastor of a four-square church, and he said, I took a bunch of people from my church up to Toronto when you were ministering. I said, 
Yeah. He said, we had a revival when we got back. I said, well, tell me about it. I said, you know, how did it happen? He said, well, you prayed for this one woman. She got 14 gold teeth. I said, what? Because I thought I'd been totally left out, you know. She said, no, no, 14 gold teeth. And I said, well, how did that bring re revival? Well, when we discovered she had the gold teeth, we came back on Sunday morning. We had her stand right in front of the pulpit and open her mouth like this. And I had the people of the church come by and look in her mouth. And when they saw all those gold teeth that God had put in there, they, it broke out in revival. And the church has, gro has grown eightfold in one year. Yeah. We have had an 800% increase because that day when they looked at her teeth, they, the glory of God fell in the, in the service. So I found out I didn't get totally left out. I just thought I had. But do I understand it? No, I don't understand it. <laughs> I think it was a calling card of God to get people's attention, to bring people to the meeting is what I think. Um, so, oh, back to Carlos Anaconda because I didn't finish that story. Um, so I asked him, how come? Can you explain to me why you have 80% of your converts end up in church? And in North America, we have six. And he said, he's got a real raspy voice. He said, in Spanish, he said, it is because you in North America, you give them enough of the gospel to get them forgiven, but you don't give them enough to get them free. And because they still have their demons, after a honeymoon period of that incubator for a few days, then that spirit rises up and it tempts them. And it's not a normal temptation of the flesh. It's a spirit. And because you didn't get them free, they fall and then they repent and they fall and they repent and they fall and they repent and they fall because it's not a natural temptation of the flesh. It's a demonic power at work in them and they don't know it. And finally they said, I can't live this life and they backslide. You need to give them enough of the gospel to get them forgiven and Get them free. There's the perspective of somebody that I think knows what he's talking about. Uh, let me read a, a quote from Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright was one of the greatest circuit riding evangelists in Methodist history. Uh, throughout southern, I'm from southern Illinois, raised there. Throughout southern Indiana, southern Illinois, uh, west Kentucky was where a lot, and, uh, and uh, even up in southern Ohio, of his, of his work was. Um, and he said this um, in his autobiography about the uh, Cumberland Revival that soon followed the Cane Ridge Revival. And this revival affected the Presbyterians, causing a split in the denomination. And so you got the Cumberland Presbyterians related to the Cumberland Revival. In southern Illinois, we had Cumberland Presbyterians. They were much more open to uh, the spirit and revival. And so Cartwright said this uh, about it. The Presbyterians of almost all sorts put forth a mighty effort to stop the work of God. Just in the midst of of our controversies, 
on the subject of the powerful exercises among the people under preaching. A new exercise broke out among us called the jerks, which was overwhelming in its effects upon the bodies and minds of the people. Whether they were saints or sinners, they would be taken under a warm song or sermon and seized with a convulsive jerking all over, which they could not by any possibility avoid. And the more they resisted, the more they jerked. If they would not strive against it and pray in good earnest, the jerking would usually abate. I've seen more than 500 persons jerking at one time in my large congregations. Most usually persons taken with the jerks to obtain relief, as they said, would rise up and dance. And some would run but could not get away. Some would resist. On such, the jerks were generally very severe. It's believed that the Pentecostal tradition of when the, being hit by the Spirit, getting up and running around the church, began right here. This is where that tradition began. They would run or start dancing. Now, some were running to get away. Some were running just... Because of the jerks. <laughs> I thought it would help them. Uh, let's see. Now here's a quote from Vincent Simon. How prevalent were some of these phenomena during the early 1800s? Sinan states, a responsible student of these phenomena has estimated that by 1805, started in 1801, I think it was, 1800 or 1801, um, by 1805, over half of all the Christians of Kentucky had exhibited these motor phenomena. These traits were called by some Methodist fits. How prevalent were these phenomena outside of Kentucky? From Kentucky, the revivalistic flames spread all over the entire South reaching into Tennessee, North and South Carolina, West Virginia, and Georgia. In most places, the same phenomena were repeated. In some areas, another manifestation was reported, in addition to those already described. In the revival that hit the University of Georgia, I mentioned this yesterday, in 1800-1801, students visited nearby campgrounds and were themselves smitten with the jerks and talking in unknown tongues. So you got the experience of tongues happening 100 years before Pentecost. In this revival, they just didn't connect it to, you know, the doctrine of baptism, spirit with evidence, speaking in tongues. That, that would come a whole hundred years later. Uh, from 1800 until the present day, such phenomena have a, a, a accompanied, in some degree, almost every major revival, regardless of denomination or doctrine. Now, I wanted to read um, a quote from Finney, if I can. Yeah, here's one. Uh, Finney was converted by God sovereignly. When, when, as God sovereignly moved upon his heart, he went out into the woods and he spent hours crying out and praying and had this amazing conversion experience. And uh, after seeking God for forgiveness for hours uh, and uh, seeking his pardon, his forgiveness, he prayed through. The scripture promises regarding such pardon were of great help to him at this time. And the evening of the day that he was converted, he was also baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
Listen to his words. Quote, and as I closed the door, I turned around. My heart seemed to be liquid within me. All my feelings seemed to rise and flow out. And the utterance of my heart was, I want to pour out my whole soul out to God. The rising of my soul was so great that I rushed into the back room of the front office to pray. There was no fire and no light in the room. Nevertheless, it appeared to me as if it were perfectly light. And as I went in and shut the door after me, it seemed as if I met the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. It did not occur to me then, nor did it for some time afterward, that it was a holy mental state. On the contrary, it seemed to me that I saw him as I would see any other man. He said nothing, but looked at me in such a manner as to break me right down at his feet. I fell down at his feet and poured out my soul to him. I wept aloud like a child and made such confessions as I could with my choked utterance. It seemed to me that I bathed his feet with my tears, and yet I had no distinct impression that I touched him that I recollect. I must have continued in this state for a good while, but my mind was, so, was too much absorbed with the interview to recollect anything that I said. But I know as soon as my mind became calm enough, calm enough to break off from the interview, it re I returned to the front office and found that the fire that had had made of large wood was nearly burned out. That's just a way of saying this was a long time, this experience, because of a bit large wood in the fireplace and it had almost burned out. But as I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost without any expectation of it, without ever having the thought in my mind that there was any such thing for me without any recollection that I had ever heard the thing mentioned by any person in the world, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it, it seemed to fan me like immense wings. No words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. And I do not know, but I should say I li literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. These waves came over me and over me and over me, one after another, until I recollect, I cried out, I shall die if these waves continue to pass over me. I said, Lord, I cannot bear any more. Yet I had no fear of death. When I was a young man reading stuff like this, just made me so desperate and hungry for the experience of revival. I wanted this. I, this and Moody who said, Lord, stay your hand lest you slay me. I can't stand anymore when he is being baptized in the Spirit. I just, it's what I wanted. Couldn't stand it. Oh, God, that's possible. That's what I want. I'd like to tell you a similar story to this. 
Not from the 1800s. From the 1900s. Somewhere close to around 1970. There was a man whose name was Randy. Not me. Another Randy. His last name was McMillan. And his great or great-great-grandfather started the first Presbyterian church in Jamestown at the founding of Jamestown in the beginning of our colonial period. His, I don't know if his great or great-great-grandfather was the pastor. His dad was an elder in the Presbyterian church. His dad was a very successful lawyer who had many lawyers working under him in his own firm. So the boy was very spoiled. He had fast cars, any cars. They always had a fleet, not a fleet, but many cars. Nice, fancy, big, expensive cars. Huge home. Spoiled kid. And he has a wreck. And during the wreck, somebody gets killed. It really affects him. He goes to university at 18 years old. And he is not seeking after God. He's partying, getting drunk, doing drugs, not going to church. He's taking his leave from his parents And during uh, the beginning of spring break, he and some friends are going to drive up 95 on the uh, interstate, and they're going to go up to New York. They got to go through. He lived in um, um, Virginia, Virginia Beach, I think, in that area, Virginia Beach. Newport News in that area. So he goes in to pack his clothes. He's locked the door in his room, turns around to put his clothes in a suitcase, and when he does, there's Jesus. Just like this. Just like this. And he begins to wail. He's crying so hard wailing as he feels such deep conviction as he looks in the eyes of Jesus that he falls at his feet just like a carbon copy. And the people, he is wailing so loud under deep conviction and repenting and confessing sin that the people are beating on the door. They think he's having a mental breakdown. And they can't get in. And this goes on for some time. When it finally... He leaves. Jesus leaves. He's always over, unlocks the door, and they come in. They're trying to find out what's going on, and he can't hardly talk. He's just undone. He packs his clothes and packs his luggage in the car, and there's about four of them. And by the time they get from um, Jacksonville, Florida, to Virginia, uh, Virginia Beach, they just stopped by his dad and mom's house and said, we're going to have to leave him with you. He can't be with us. Something's seriously wrong with him. On the way up to Virginia, in the back seat of the car, he heard a voice 
said, you're going to be a missionary. He said it out loud. I'm going to be a missionary. His friends turned and said, what's that? Uh, and one of them was a backslidden holiness kid. He said, hey, guys, this is God. I, my grandmother's told me about stuff like this. This is God. This guy has met God. This, that's why he's getting so weird. And, and, and God's after him. And, and so they, they, they said, nah, we're, we're not taking him with us anymore. Now, his dad is a very famous lawyer. And his dad is a cessationist. His dad doesn't believe these things happen anymore. So his dad is going to have to bring him to his right mind. So he gets his legal pad and gets his... What bag they carry? Briefcase. Yeah, nuts. Okay. And he gets his wife and they go to a very fancy hotel... And they get him a room, and they get a room. And then he begins doing this, like, 12-hour cross-examination. Now, tell me again, when did this begin? Okay. Now, uh, <clears throat> have you been going to church a lot? Have you gotten into a group that's weird? And... No. So you weren't going to church very much? <clears throat> he, said, I need... he said, no, I haven't been to church in months. Well, that proves this can't be God. That's what the dad said. That proves this can't be God. You weren't even, we weren't even in a good place with God. He said, I don't, <clears throat> said, I know. I don't deserve it. So he asked him more questions. He said, what did he say? Because he had planned on his dad. He's going to become a lawyer. He like him. <clears throat> he said, I'm going to be a missionary. Now, that's ridiculous. First of all, we don't believe God speaks anymore like this. This has to be a deceiving, lying spirit. And his dad is cross-examining all the time. And so what have you been doing? You've been reading your Bible a lot? You've been praying a lot? No, Dad, I've been doing drugs. What? <laughs> that proves this cannot be God. Did you take some of that LSD stuff? No, Dad. Finally, after 12 hours of cross-examination, the wife says to her husband, you know, you better be careful lest he's right. And it was God that spoke to him. You better be careful. Well, long story short, the Lord also spoke to him and said, you're going to be a missionary and you're going to end up in a place that doesn't speak English and you're going to meet a woman who's going to be your wife that is going to take you to that country well he all of a sudden when he comes back to school he starts leading everybody to Jesus he just has this gift and and he's teaching and he, he meets this young pretty Colombian named Marcy whose uh, parents are quite established and well off in Columbia, they ended up getting married, and he went to, not Bogota, not, not oh, Cali. He went to Cali. Matter of fact, I'll tell you who this guy is. You ever heard of the, the big stadiums where they come and they just, in Cali, and they just meet and pray, 
And as a result of that, the, the whole cartel, the main leaders, was busted. This is the guy who started that. And for a long time, they called him the weeping prophet because he would just weep. And I actually have this video. This is amazing stuff. This is actually, um, I did like an hour interview, and he's taking the airport the next day, and the fog was so thick that we couldn't see. We had to drive so slow. Anyway, he said, this is the only time on my, you know, like 40 years in Colombia I've ever seen like this. And, and uh, I, my flight couldn't get out. <clears throat> I had to stay an extra day, which gave me an extra day to do more interviews. I ended up with three or four more hours of interview with this guy. So he goes to Columbia, and he's not there very long. And we're in his, actually in his office, and he, he said, uh, right where that window I was sitting there, used to have a desk there, and I was young. I was looking up the street there. All of a sudden, I felt deathly sick. Just, I feel weak. I feel sick. And it hit me just like that. I turned around, and in my room, it's full of demons. And I can see them. It's full. And one of them is like a ruler. And he said to me, you have to get out of Cali. And I'm thinking, boy, this guy wants me out of Cali. He didn't say out of Columbia. He just said, out of Cali. That means God must have something big planned for me in Cali. So I said, no, God brought me here, and I'm not leaving till God tells me to leave. You can threaten me all you want, but I am not going to leave. Now, he, he said, Randy, this was not a vision. They were there. He said, finally, they left. But I was sick for six months with weakness just from immediately from that point God brought him through it and he did stay and he was used powerfully he had a powerful influence on Cesar Castellano the pastor of the largest church in the western hemisphere for a while he's the one who told him about uh, a government of 12 um And yet, even though he had all these experiences, and he was almost exactly my age, he had a heart attack uh, later in life, probably 55 to 58, somewhere in there. Massive heart attack. Um, his, friend, his very good friends with Benny Hinn, Benny prayed for him and all. And about a year ago, uh, he passed and Went to heaven. Which means that there's a lot of things that I don't understand. How you can have such amazing experiences with God and with the devil. And see, and he saw a lot of healings, a lot of miracles. I've preached in his church many times. and It's a great church. He, he, he really helped my prayer life because I don't know if anybody ever been to Columbia. Columbia is Latin America, their view of traffic laws is different from North America. And it's kind of like he's driving this little old car, and they'll make four streets 
four rows out of Tulane Highway. And it, 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 I literally think my hand grip was inside the, the arm rest by the time he got me to his church. It was like I was praying really hard because of this ride in the car with these guys. And uh, I remember one night we were driving together, and they, they'd come to an intersection, and they just flipped their lights off. And, the, and it can be a red light. Flip the lights off. They don't see. They just go right on through the red light. I said, what? What would you do if you had an accident? What's that light for? He said, well, um, that would just determine who gets the ticket. I said, what if you both turned out your lights at the same time? He said, well, we'd have a wreck. He said, that's just a suggestion. These, these laws are suggestions. I wanted to say we can't leave these stories a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago. Because I believe God is still doing this stuff. And there are people who are being apprehended. I remember seeing Todd White. Anybody know who Todd White is? I was preaching in a meeting on impartation. And Todd White was in the front, second row. And... During the impartation time, God got him. And he's on the floor between two seats, between two rows, sweating profusely, crying loudly, and saying, I'm burning up, I'm burning up, I'm burning up, I'm so hot, I'm burning up, I'm going to die. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I remember seeing him. Now he works for Reinhard Bunky. I've seen God do that. And I'll talk about this this afternoon. Some of the things that we've seen God do. Um, all right, for the next 45 minutes, I want to take and just have some time to deal with questions and answers about it, whatever you'd like to ask. If I don't feel qualified to answer, I'll say I don't know. If I don't feel qualified to answer some question, I, I don't know. Yes. No, I don't want people to think that these are common. Finney had two that I'm aware of, or three. Over his whole life, uh, Randy McMillan had that one uh, where Jesus appeared only once, where the demonic appeared only once. Omar Cabrera, uh, his view about the angels, uh, that he told me, when he, I need to learn how to work with the angels. That happened to him when he was having a problem with a, a woman in a church, and he's doing this, uh, going to a hotel, and he'd stay there for days to weeks until he'd prayed through, and God would show him what is the power over this um, region. And God at that moment would give him permission to come against it. Now, I, I interviewed because I, I, Wimber didn't believe in this, and he, and he was going to kick me out if I taught on it. So I went to Argentina to meet the top leaders in strategic level spiritual warfare and interviewed them, not just in Argentina, but four or five, but also in Colombia, uh, Colombia Guatemala, um, Uruguay, um, Brazil, asking these kinds of questions. And um, so 
Omar said, I would never do, come out against unless God in that moment was giving me the authority. And I know now in this moment, now you have authority to do it. And I told Omar, I, I said, you know, Omar, you admit this is a secret of your ministry's success, this type of strategic level spiritual warfare before you even begin the crusade. But you have not taught any of your spiritual sons or even your biological sons how to do this. And I pushed him on it, and, and, and Martha got def defensive. And he put his hand over on her arm and said, No, Martha, he's right. <laughs> I haven't. And he said, I can't. It's too personal for me. I said, You're the, he said, when that moment hits, I feel like my eyes are going to bug out of my I feel like my every part of my cell of my body is just a power of God's going through it. And people would think I was crazy. I said, your sons wouldn't. I can't do it. I, I, I said, put up, put up a window, and you can't see through, but they can see you. And if it takes two weeks, so what? Let them see what you do, how you do it. He never did. But anyway, the point I was trying to say on that was uh, while he was in there praying, and by the way, maybe one, two minutes out of two days to two weeks or more is spent addressing the demonic. The rest of it's all addressing God. It's not coming against the demonic, only in that moment. And that's one of the things I learned from Peter Wagner. I thought it was all a homogeneous approach. If you read his books on spiritual warfare, strategic level spiritual warfare, you come away thinking that. But when I got to Latin America and actually interviewed the people, it's not at all. There's such diversity of opinion about how to do it and who should do it that uh, it's, it's actually misleading to think hey, this is the Everybody does it this way because it really uh, wasn't. But anyway, while he was there, he has a demon appear in the room, just like for Randy McMillan. And the demon, he said, I'd never. He said, Randy, it, it, was, it manifested. It appeared. It wasn't a vision. It was there. And it basically said, give me permission. Give me the authority. I'll take care of that woman for you. She'll not be a problem anymore. He said, no, absolutely not. And he said, but when I saw that, I knew if that is that real, the angels are too. So I don't think, I think it's misleading to think that we should expect to have many of these types of experiences. I, I, as I've read through church history and uh, called hagiography, which is the study of the saints uh, and Catholicism, I've read a lot of that too. Um, these types of experiences are not common. So if you've had a few, be grateful. <laughs> Many people don't have any. Yes. Uh, let's use this mic yeah. just for the recording. Thank you. Yesterday, uh, you touched a little bit on the apostolic and how um, that's coming as a part of a, the apostolic ministry. If it's not too off topic, can you talk about that a little bit more? Like how is it bestowed and how does it work? Okay. Well, I... I don't feel qualified to do much of an answer on that. I, would, I want to say this. My opinion on that about apostolic ministry, and it's being restored. It's being restored in a sense that people are willing to even talk about it. But in one sense, I think it's almost wrong to talk about the restoration of the prophetic and the apostolic. Because I don't think it was ever lost. I think Whitfield... 
and Wesley were apostolic. I can think of people in, in different generations that were apostolic. Um, people today who are apostolic. People who didn't believe in apostles who are apostolic. And what happened, because of the, the as I talked on the other day, because of the uh, understanding of um, apostles are supposed to have written Scripture. If you have a closed canon, you can't have apostles. That's the reason. Not understanding only, I think, four apostles out of the 84 that's mentioned in the New Testament um, in the verb form and the noun form ever wrote Scripture. So, the, And half of the New Testament, almost approximately, was written by non-apostles. So that whole argument is wrong. Where it says apostles, the church was built upon the prophets and the apostles. Um, there's, it's, it's, it's true, but it's continued to be built upon the prophets and the apostles. And so if you get a theology that doesn't allow for it, that doesn't mean God's limited in what he does because of man's uh, flawed theology. Humankind's flawed theology. So God continued to have people in these roles but they wouldn't use the title, and, and they didn't believe. And especially if you had people who believed that um, the gifts are over. Well, you had people being moved in power but not gifts because they didn't believe gifts are for today, healing and miracles like that, uh, but yet who uh, shook countries. And, and uh, so apostle literally means one that's sent. And um, there is a difference in the New Testament itself between what I call the apostles with the big A, the 12, and apostles with the little A who are called apostles, but they're not in the 12, and neither did they meet the criteria for the 12. And the criteria for the 12 is not the same criteria for the use of the word apostle in the New Testament for others. And sometimes you start out with a prophet and then grow into an apostle, like, or a teacher, grow like uh, Saul and Barnabas, for example. They go out as prophets, teachers, and come back as apostles. Um, you have apostolic teams that flow, and I think that's really key to look at the New Testament and see how they, Paul used apostolic teams, different people with different skills that he took with him on, 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 uh, on a tr- his uh, missionary journeys, uh, leaving different people in different places, you know. So um, I, I, Wimber's concern is that people would become braggadocious, controlling, and he, he really wanted, to, I, I think, there are people who knew him who thinks that he really believed that he had that kind of a call in his life, but he would never talk about it because of this, the desire, let's try to keep um, walk in humility and not braggadociousness. One of the things that he said, and I agree with it, John Wimber said, I agree with and I'll never forget when he said it. He said, a lot of structures are like this with the top, like apostle at the top, and everybody... He's, he's basically like a general or a CEO. And we're talking about leadership. And I agree with what Wimber said. The biblical view of leadership is not this. This is the American corporate view of leadership. 
the biblical view of leadership and, and apostles that, is this way. The weight is on the leadership, but they are servants, not executives. And, um, you know, like Francis Asbury, I, definitely, I, 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 he was like one of the leaders of early Methodism and, uh, and Coke, Thomas Coke. What they did, they, they rode sometimes between a quarter of a million and a half a million miles on horseback, establishing churches all over the colonies and later the United, early United States. Some never married because of their commitment to the cause. But they didn't move. Uh, they, they, they were people of their time who um, had been influenced heavily. The church had been influenced heavily with cessationism. It took a while to break out of that. But I do believe that. Oh, oh and now, that's my opinion. Now I'm going to give you, you want to really see a scholarly written piece about this is John Ruthven's book on the cessation of the charismata uh, Protestant polemic on post-biblical miracles. In the appendix number two, second appendix, is on our apostles for today. It's, it is very biblical, very scholarly, and it's one of the best things you can read on it. subject. J-O-N-R-U-T-H-V-E-N. He was my professor at, at uh, the seminary where I got my doctorate at. I recruited him. And out of retirement, because I thought he was like the best on this subject. Over here, wait till we get the mic to you. So you know what this is? This is the reverse of rabbit trails. <laughs> Instead of me chasing rabbit, we get to I get, we get to pursue your rabbit. <laughs> There's been a lot of prophecies over this region of revival especially along the I-35 corridor maybe 15, 20 years ago, that revival would break out in the Dallas area. It would be like a hub that would go out to different parts of the United States and different parts of the world. What are some tips or keys that you can give the leaders of this region to, to really spark that and light that fuse? <laughs> to allow the prophecies to... Create faith and expectation to undergird the prayer for it. And then just to do the stuff that you know you're supposed to be doing as you're praying. It's not like we only pray and don't start. We pray and we do the stuff. You know, because when we say, just do the stuff. What's the stuff? Tell people about the kingdom, the king, and heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. We had a grandmother in my ministry uh, in the United States whose grandson was killed. Doctors there, he hit, hit a, a jet ski accident, uh, killed him instantly. He had a big gash in his leg, no blood. He, he, he didn't, because when your heart stops, blood doesn't pump. And so it wasn't pumping out. And they got him. They got him back. About 30 minutes he'd been dead. He's on the dock. There's a, uh, the doctor there for the family. He, the doctor said he's dead. The grandmother had heard us talk about, you know, God raised dead. She got down on the boy, starts putting hand on his chest, and is doing what we'd, we'd heard others then. He called him by his name, come back into his body, for his spirit to come back into his body. 
And she had done that for some time, and nothing was happening. And finally, she just got upset. She's, this, I don't remember the boy's name. Let's say it's John. Johnny, this is your grandmother, and I'm telling you, you come back now in Jesus' name. And bam, he came back. <laughs> he just recently graduated uh, college. And so you do, you pray, you believe, you pray, and you, you, you continue to do this stuff. Yes, uh, this guy's coming over. Or want to go back there first, then we'll come to you. All right, he was right yeah, here. I reserved it. Hey, I just want to see, can you just briefly, like, elaborate, if you can, on your history and, you know, with revival in the context of uh, revival and networking uh, with, you know, leader pastors in cities? What you've seen that's maybe one thing that you've seen that's, that's, that's been beneficial and some, one thing that you've Toward revival? Seen. Yeah, just towards revival, because there seems to be movements of, yeah. of pastors coming together and... and it, yeah, uh, the longest revival I w- was in, in uh, other than Toronto, lasted eight and a half months. And after Toronto, for a solid year, I would go... Uh, I, I, would, I would go and I'd, I'd do like three days of meetings, then come home and stay like three days home and drive, take out again, fly again. And... Uh, for a year, that was the modus operandi. Just three days home, three days gone, a day kind of try- between the two split. And uh, then I heard, I got this invitation to Melbourne, Florida. When I got the invitation, when the people told me what was happening, I said, listen, I'm going to schedule two weeks to come be with you. Now, I never scheduled two weeks, only three days. But what they told me was happening made me believe this place is going to have revival. And so I believed it so strong by what they told me that I scheduled two weeks and went there. And revival did break out and went eight and a half months. And I had to come home for a week and then I came back for another two weeks and ended up being there quite some time. And the, the pastors told me later, said, when you first came here and told us what you thought God was going to do and what we were to do to get ready for it, we thought you was kind of crazy and really didn't believe you. But we did it because you said to, get, to do these things. But everything you said was going to have to happen, everything. It took us months to come to the place in our faith to be where you were at. But then after about three or four months, we, we had that kind of faith too. And... You know, they, they, then the local pastors uh, carried it for the next four months. During the first three months, I was there quite a bit. I got John Arnott to come, Cheon to come, Mike Bickle to come, uh, Wes Campbell to come, friends I knew uh, in revival. I said, we, and we just kept, you know, bringing more speed. You might ask then, then, okay, what did you hear that gave you such a sense that this place was going to have revival? Now, here's what they told me. Number one, this city, just a a couple of years before, there had always been a white minister alliance and a black minister alliance, and they just merged. It had been about two years, and they were ministering, meeting together. The charismatic Pentecostals and the evangelicals were meeting together regularly, praying together, and building friendships. To me, it's even more difficult to get Pentecostals and Evangelicals to work together than it is black and white. 
though there's just, there's even more prejudice sometimes between that. So when I heard that, I said, that's the sign of God. God is setting this place up. This is not normal. God's up to something. So that, to me, that was, uh, and, and, I, and there was, there, there had been praying for revival and there was great hunger there. And I stepped into uh, kindling wood and lit a fire. Uh, and, and, and it was a God's ordained thing too. Because like the first two or three days, one of these guys asked me, what do you think of me? I said, well, it's not what I thought it was going to be. It's not, I mean, there's a lot of good things happening. And that, and that month, I saw a breakthrough in my own life. And I saw more healings that month than I saw in the first 24 years of ministry put together. So there was an outpouring of healing that happened. Uh, we, we, we trained um, 2,000 people in, in two weeks between the Southern Baptist Church in Titusville, Peter Lord, down to Assembly God Church at Vero Beach with Buddy, can't remember Buddy's last name. And, and of course, in, in Melbourne. The newspaper picked it up. I mean, it's on both, uh, on the Florida Today mag, a newspaper, front page, both inside. This is, and it was positive. And so what happened the third day, it, was, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't as powerful as what I thought it was going to be. It hadn't broke out yet. And so this guy asked me what well, I thought. I said, well, it's not happened yet. It's not what I think is supposed to happen. There's more. And it was good. And for the, They thought it was wonderful. I was looking for more. So this guy invites me. He said, I want you to come down. It's about a half-hour drive. But it's going to be a 9 o'clock um, or 8 o'clock uh, radio program. And I said, can I do it by phone? He said, no. I need you to come. And I said, man, that's okay. Uh, and he said, and I'm going to interview you because you're too controversial. I'm not going to let anybody else interview you but me because we've got to handle this interview right. I said, all right. So I go down there, and this is the third day, fourth day maybe. And uh, we're in this little studio. The, the general manager the, is uh, interviewing me. And as he's interviewing me, Behind him is a holiness guy, kind of like a Nazarene uh, who doesn't believe in this stuff, and he's kind of against it. But as we're talking, over his shoulder, I see this guy who works for him. He's an engineer, a uh, radio engineer type guy. And he starts shaking <laughs> and as we're talking. Now, but he's behind the general manager. The general manager doesn't know it. So they, it's a live program. So they go to a break. During the break, I said, you know, we've been talking about this, but God's all over this guy right here behind you. I think we just need to pray for him right now on the break. It's like a two-minute break or something. So there's a little, you know, there's a blank space like this between his table and my table. And I said, well, come here. So the guy came around. I prayed for him. He hits the floor, and he's shaking violently. His feet is just going like that. You can hear it. His feet are just doing that, and he's shaking all over. And now it's live. We're back. And now he's trying to do this interview. And I'm just cool, calm, and collected. I'm not mentioning anything, just doing the interview. And finally, the guy says, I can't do this anymore. People, i got to tell you what just happened. So he told it on the radio. And, 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 and so uh, it was like a half-hour interview. And when uh, it's time to go, he said, Randy, it's the custom that whoever speaks, is, we just ask you to pray for everybody in the station. I said, Okay. They lined them up. I prayed for them. God knocked them all out. 
Now they have nobody to run the station. So the general manager makes it to the microphone and said, and I'm gone because I got to go back. I got another meeting in Melbourne. And he said, everybody is on the floor. Everybody is shaking. Everybody is crying. God has touched the radio station. Now, this guy's never prayed for anybody in his life. He's simply God, son of an assembly God pastor. He's heard about stuff. He's never seen it. And he's never prayed himself. And he said, God is here. If you would like to be touched of God, drive to the radio station. <laughs> now, what we didn't know, what we didn't know was while this radio station 30-minute interview is going on live, people are going through surfing the channels, and they'd hear it, and they could hear the stuff going on in the background. And because it kept it live, and they said, we'll just put something on music, and he said, people are still shaking, and people are still out on the floor, and, and we just... And then people started coming, and the guy got up, and he'd pray for them. Boom! They just hit the floor. They ran out of floor space. In the radio station, there's no floor space left. People kept coming, and this is all live, what's happening. And uh, uh, so they, it, is an, it is connected to a large Assembly God church. So they, the pastor agreed they could open it up. And now, for hours, they've been, people have been coming. And they walk in, and they fall out under the power of God and shaking and stuff. And this, this one guy... It was the anniversary of his 20-year-old son who was decapitated as he was uh, uh, going under a bridge in the nighttime on a boat and just standing up. And it, just, and it was the year anniversary of his son's death, which is not a good time. And this guy is a conservative Baptist cessationist. And he walked in, and they saw him, and they, they said, we are in trouble now, is what they thought. And the guy starts weeping. And then he starts laughing on the anniversary of his son's death. And he's getting healed. And he says, this is God. So my meeting got over around one. We go out to the car, turn on the radio, and we hear all this is going on. We didn't know it was still going on. And we call him and say, hey, we're coming back. And they said, okay, Randy's coming back. And on the way down, I'm I'm driving, I'm, I'm, I'm riding in the back seat. I got three friends in the front row. And, 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 and driving. I get a really powerful word of knowledge on the way down. I mean, it feels like I'm having a little heart attack. It's just breathing off the top of my lungs, hurting. And I'm literally, the, the guy turned around and said, should we take you to the hospital? I said, no, I think it's a word. <laughs> I never forget. He said, Lord, I don't want that kind of word. Give me telegrams or something, nothing like that. The moment we walk in, this guy sees one of his patients who's got a really bad problem in his heart. He gets healed. And it, it comes, um, oh, one of the guys was driving a Pepsi truck, delivering. And he happens to come upon this. He starts shaking so bad in his truck, he has to drive it back and take the rest of the day off. He says, I can't drive like this. You know, he's just overwhelmed and, and literally. <clears throat> so the, the <coughs> that night, the, the crowd had doubled. We couldn't get him in the building. We had to put a screen up on the outside. It's, of course, nice weather in Florida. It was January. And chairs outside because we couldn't get him in the building. God birthed that thing through that event. It just exploded it. 
Next. <laughs> I can hold it. That's all right. <laughs> this is weird. Um, your story a while ago really jumped out when the, uh, the attorney and the wife and the son and the attorney says, well, if you heard something, it's got to be a deceiving spirit. Like, the only, peop- the only spirit talking is the, de- is the devil. God doesn't talk, only devils talk to people. That's kind of where he was at, yes. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Dallas, and yeah. that's what they said in my church, in the Lutheran church, the cessationist yeah. kind of church, and that's what all the churches were saying, and I couldn't stand it. And I didn't know what was, I knew that was wrong, but I didn't, didn't know what was right. And I moved away and blah, 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 and I, I've moved back 35 years later. But luckily, in the meantime, I stumbled into the Malibu Vineyard in L.A., and I discovered the truth, et cetera, et cetera. But when I came back here, I started church shopping. I didn't know where to go. And it was really horrific, that whole experience of going church to church. And I'll just say one story. I went into Watermark one time, and uh, this pastor was saying this one little short story of how his elder came up to him that week, was so excited because he'd been to this Christian conference, and this woman from Kansas ran up to him and said, Sir, I think I have a word of knowledge for you. Would you like to hear it? And she gave it to him, and he said, Pastor, it was something I've been praying about for six months, and it was so wonderful, and they just released me to go do this thing I've been praying about. Isn't that great? And the pastor said, Boys and girls, and this is in front of 2,500 people, you do not need some witch from Kansas to uh, tell you what the the will of God is for your life. You've got the Bible. Just read the Bible. And I looked around this place, and there were like 2,500 people. Nobody blinked. Nobody murmured. Nobody looked around. In the and it just fell on them like gospel. And that's, <clears throat> that's the megachurch of Dallas. So I'm coming at it from kind of the opposite of this I-35 kind of idea of the revival in Dallas because there's a dome on this city that is much more oppressive than the L.A place where I came from where the demons run around in plain sight and they're on the outside of the church for the most part rather than the ones on the inside here that are the big guns the big loud noises the people you see on television versus the storehouses of this city of which there are some and I'm just wondering I feel sometimes I know this is like I was listening last night you know Jesus doesn't want his sons and daughters to be nitpicking at each other and all this sort of thing. So I'm kind of falling into that camp, and I don't want to have any kind of spiritual pride. I don't want to pick on people and be negative. But I, I just feel so um, offended by this that I feel like sometimes, you know, God needs to drop like a nuclear bomb on this place to break this up because it's so horrible and it's so oppressive. And I, I have people come up to me in Dallas say, Oh, you lived in New York and London and L.A., all these horrible, nasty places, and aren't you glad to be here? And they're all shiny, polished-up Christians, right? And I said, yeah, where do you go to church, and what do they talk about, blah, blah, blah. And it's just the same old thing. And it's, and it's just sort of this self-satisfaction of, of this thing I'm talking about here, which I, I know you know. We were praying Monday here, and Jeremy was there, and this woman got this vision of a sea of people carrying black umbrellas. And the word was spiritual ignorance, not by choice, but by lack of exposure to the truth. And 
you know, I know people are not going to like me saying this, but I just feel so strongly that Dallas is a sea of spiritual ignorance because it's dominated by these powerful, big voices speaking out of this religious spirit. And, um, and your question is? My question is, <laughs> I'm not baiting you into agree with this, but I know places in the world exist like this. And what do you do? How, what happens? And what happens maybe historically? or How do we fix it, Randy? Why? I believe that this will be dealt with through commitment to the Bible. And if we can get people to commit to the Bible without reading it through cessationist glasses, if they can begin to see the fallacy of the cessationist argument, then they're going to become open because they're committed to the Bible. And so it's going to take good biblical scholarship to root out the lies of, of the doctrine of demons that basically uh, created a form of godliness but denies the power thereof. Now, does that mean I think the people who are in these churches are demonized? I think the people in all churches, there are some people in all churches are demonized. So, but do I think the, the leader, I think, they're, I think they're under the influence of a um, teaching that is not truly biblical. I think they're good people, they love God, and they're doing the best as far as what they know. But they have been deceived. And it's through theology. And it has to be a, um, that's why um, Ruthven's book is so good. Uh, on the cessation of charismatic. It's the gold standard because it deals with the arguments and shows you the inconsistency. And it, once people's eyes begin to open up and they can begin, hopefully, and we pray for the eyes, the blinders to come off. And there has to be not just the argument, there needs to be the demonstration. It's one thing to argue that these things for today. It's another thing to demonstrate these things are for today. It's, it's going to take both the the uh, letting the Bible speak for itself as it what it says, not what, for you know, for example, some of the things in cessationism, they take a text here and there, but they don't take the the many texts that that actually teach these things are to continue till the for example Ephesians four eleven twelve and following until the saints come into the maturity, full maturity. Well, we're not there, and it says they are to continue. There's many things we're talking. These things are to continue. So I, I think one is bib, good. Bib, that's one of the reasons I recruited. We have 60-some-odd people going to the doctoral program because there's a, we need people who are very well trained in, in the Scripture and also in church history and history of doctrines. This developed. This is how it developed. This is why it developed. Here's what was going on at the time. Be, because if you get some of the key leaders to get touched, then hope. Things can change quickly. Um, and I mentioned this one name, one girl that was so seriously injured uh, with, with her nerves down in where the torso and the legs come together were uh, uh, splintered. The nerves were uh, uh, 
It's the word I'm looking for. You take something, you do like that to it, just shredded. That's the word I'm looking for. She, her, her major nerves were shredded, and she's the assistant to the senior pastor of 5,000-member cessationist church. But when she gets healed and comes back and he sees what God did to her, he already be, he became open. And since then, I've actually gone on, uh, online and listened to a couple of his sermons to see what he's saying because he's got a series now on, on healing for today. Question mark, which he does believe it. But he's got a whole elders who are not ready because he's trained his elders so well. Even though he's changing, they're still stuck. He's going to take a while. It takes a lot longer to, to turn an ocean liner than it does a ski boat. The bigger the church, the slower it is in turning it because you have so many layers of leadership. And uh, uh, But there are churches today. There are, I mean, I don't know how long it's going to take, but there are churches and there are people that are that are changing in this view. And... Um, Matter of fact, would you run and get that book on the the one that looks like Hank, like uh, MacArthur's book? Looks like Strange Fire, Power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because uh, that's one of the reasons I wrote this. And uh, and if you look at the endorsements of it, there's a there, there's it's all PhDs, New Testament scholars and theologians, who wrote the endorsement, uh, the endorsements. Uh, to the book I wrote in response to MacArthur, uh, his cessationist argument, which to me was just, but the people are blinded. And so he has these uh, strange fire conferences. Um, so this is an answer. And it, it, even if you give it and say, would you, you know, give it to him, would you, would you read this? Would you just be a Berean and look at the other side of the argument? I think we, we need those kinds of things. It needs to be demonstrated because even if you demonstrate it, they can say it's a line, sign, and wonder. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, this power is coming from the enemy. And so it's not enough just to have the demonstration. You need to have the demonstration and the philosophical, theological, and biblical arguments to let the word speak for itself. Right. But it is true. They don't see it because they don't have faith for it because they've been taught that it's the... And, and it's a self-fulfilling problem. It's a self-fulfilling effect. If you, for example, Hank Anagraf says, uh, I, he, he, he <clears throat> says like he's charismatic. But he's, and he says, oh, I believe healing is possible. But healing is not to be normative. In the sense of it's not something you see regularly. That is a self-fulfilling worldview. If your worldview, if your religious worldview is healing is not to be normative, then you're not going to expect it to be normative. Well, healing wasn't normative for me for 14 years. But for the last 21 years, healing has been normative. 
I mean, every service, somebody gets healed. Uh, I expect it. I'm not expecting it to be rare. I don't have this view of God that hands are tight-fisted and you got to prize fingers loose of a gift before you can get one through, you know, it's... It, but you're right. It, it, the theology creates the faith and where there's no expectation, it's very rarely will they sit because God honors authority. I've never seen a church go into renewal that the pastor didn't want it. They have to desire. That's true. But I think you can. I think if you sit down long enough and you say, why do you believe that? Not just going text for text, but why are you interpreting this text this way? Let me show you why this text is not according to just the best principles of interpretation, hermeneutics. This is hermeneutic. What you're doing is hermeneutically wrong. And let me explain why you're doing it this way. Let me explain to you why, who you've been influenced by and why you're viewing that text that way and show you why the Scripture doesn't teach what you're saying it is. And some are so blind. There's, Jesus said there are none so blind who those who have eyes and refuse to see. So not everybody's, uh, not everybody's going to be the truth. Jesus spoke the truth, but not everybody believed in him. And they called him to be mad and all that kind of stuff. And, then, and, and he did the miracles, cast out demons, because he was like the chief of the demons, Beelzebub. You got your old Beelzebub controversy. Matter of fact, uh, Eddie Smith's book, 2,000 Years of Charismatic Christianity, is easy reading, read in one setting. It's just, it's less, I mean, it's just around 100 pages. And... Uh, um, what's really powerful about that book is basically Satan uses the same argument ever since Jesus. You call the work of God the work of the devil. And he's done it almost every major move of God. There's been some that has said that's the devil. And that's what they're doing. Yes. Um, what would you say are some of the top two or three maybe influential books that you've read other than the Bible, obviously. And um, if there's one more in particular maybe that you've, that's really influenced you in like a desert season in your life. Um, two or three. I, um, there's been a lot of books that had a big impact on me, but um, I think Ruthven's book on a cessation of charismata has been the best as far as really opening my eyes to how, why cessations think the way they do, where it's inconsistent, where it violates the principles of interpreting Scripture. Um, um, the first 300 pa 280 pages of uh, Morton Kelsey's book on healing and Christianity lays out now, I don't like the rest of the book. The rest of the book is really bad. He tries to uh, explain away. Um, he tries to explain what he's recorded in Jungian psychological terms, which I totally, kind of demythology, which I totally disagree with. The last fourth of the book, the first three-fourths, two-thirds, it's great because he lays out all uh, healing and Christianity. Morton Kelsey um, is really good. Um, Uh, 
What other books do I think really, really? Uh, um, I don't know, kind of a blank. I got, I, I got many run through my head right now. Um, oh, uh, Keener, Craig Keener is a, a Baptist uh, scholar at a Methodist seminary at Asbury. His two volumes on miracles, about 1,500 pages, uh, is, it deals, uh, deals with miracles as far as the, is amazing. Now, the, there's a couple of hundred pages in there that's uh, actually required in uh, the fourth level of phys- Christian Healing Certification Program. I rec- uh, and, I, and, I, and I juxtaposition Keener with Herbert Benson, a Harvard professor of medicine, because uh, he also has an MDiv, teaches at a seminary, as well as Harvard Medical School. But he doesn't believe anything that r- r- would violate the Newtonian, law, Newtonian laws of physics is possible. But he does believe in great power of faith more as a natural thing, mind over matter. And so I'm, I juxtaposition these two books at the same time they're having to read it in, the, in an eight-week course. It's the, the final course in the, the healing one. Because I ha- they're studying Hume, the Humean argument, which upon, upon which liberalism is based, and so if you're reading it by itself, they, I, I knew they won't get it. They say, Why should I have to read this? But then when they read um, Benson, all of a sudden now they understand it, which has got a bestseller here, New York Times bestseller, and it's pushing that argument. And now you know how to answer that argument, and you know why it's errant. You know why it's circular, circular reasoning. And you know why that Hume uh, really is it, it, not so powerful. And it gives you the basis philosophically and scientifically and biblically to understand that these things do continue. And here's why. And here's, here's why uh, the argument of, of um, a closed universe naturalism is where it's weak so I think that was a really we, we had to read it as soon as it came out that's one of the books that was required in uh, one of the two volumes so I think that it's called Miracles just simply Miracles is the main title I don't know which one of them was first so I'll I'll let him decide can you give up me Jeremy uh, could you talk a little bit about pastoring revival and the role of discipleship in revival? Pastoring revival is a real challenge. That's why it's like the power of God is like nitroglycerin. If you handle it correctly, it will cause great growth in your church. And if you, as a pastor, mishandle it, it has the same power to, to blow up. And especially the prophetic. Um, and that's why I decided that Right after Toronto, uh, uh, the first seven years, we had the voice of the prophets. It's kind of like we're going to learn how to pastor this rather than ignore it. Because I want it, but I also need to learn how do you handle the prophetic? Um, How do you handle revival? I think it's very similar. Um, You want to keep it grounded, biblically speaking? I remember somebody came up to Wimber one time and when things were really going kind of crazy, good crazy in the Anaheim Vineyard. 
And they, they were concerned. Said, How far are you going to let this go? And he said, no farther than this. And then he said, and they took comfort in that? Don't they know what's in here? <laughs> so you do, uh, I think a pastor needs to be secure, not threatened, because one of the threatening things in pastor revival is when the Holy Spirit comes, he will give some of your lay people stronger than you in certain areas. Can you handle that? Most pastors can't. And they will, if not consciously, at least subconsciously, out of fear of somebody uh, being seen, very gifted, run them out. Uh, so security is going to be one. Humility is going to be one. Because a humble person, if you're really a spiritual father, you want your spiritual sons and daughters to do more than you. That's part of the American dream in the natural was every parent wanted their children to become more than they are and have more than they have in the natural. And I remember I, when I took my first intern with me, the, uh, the first time I went to Bill Johnson's church is there. And this guy's his first trip, and he's 19 years old, just turned 19. And he'd been backslidden till a few months before. And I meet him in this meeting. I'm teaching about gifts of the Spirit, and he, came, he thought he was sick. And I start praying for him. I said, wait a minute. When did you get sick? He said, while you were teaching about words of knowledge. I said, you're not sick. You're having a word of knowledge. <laughs> and so I explained it. Asked people, if you've got it, come up here. And uh, I said, now you pray for him. You got the word of knowledge. He said, it freaked him out. But, but I listened. I paid attention. I used praying for me. So I just did it. He gets, and he, as he's doing that, he gets more. He tells me what they are. I give him. Every one of them is right. He got so gifted. He could be driving down the highway in town, city. Car come up to him, beside him. He'd know what's wrong with him. He'd feel it in his body. And when they would pull away, he'd, he'd leave. But if he caught up to him again, he'd feel it again. He was so gifted, I asked him, I, asked him, I didn't ask his dad first. Then I finally said, Dad, I'm, I'm sorry, I should have asked you first. But anyway, he traveled with me for about three years. But on his first trip, first time to ever minister, um, I'm at Bill's church, and I give, you know, about 10 words of knowledge. And I said, Ben, do you think you have any words? Yes. Come on. So he got up and gave a word of knowledge. He said, right. And I'm, this is my spiritual son. I picked him out. God showed me the gift on him. Hallelujah. He gave some more. He gave some more. He gave some more. He got to 10. That's what I had. Hmm. He gave some more, 10, 11, 12, 13. As he's given these words, I subconsciously am backing away from him. I am distancing myself. And I am not happy that he, I'm thinking like this, this is not right. I'm the teacher. He's the student. He's making me look bad. He's got more words of knowledge than I did. I do not like the way this feels. And I literally was thinking all these thoughts in my head. Don't tell me you wouldn't. But I'm thinking all these thoughts in my head. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to me because he was exactly the same age as my oldest son. He said, would you be feeling what you're feeling right now and having the same thoughts if this was your oldest son? And I said, no, God. He said, what would you be thinking? I would be happy. 
I would be excited. I would be so glad my son is becoming more than me. And the Holy Spirit said, you can never be a spiritual father until you feel that way about your spiritual sons, the way you'd feel about your natural sons. And immediately I got healed of that, and I do celebrate when my spiritual sons accomplish and do more than me. So that's going to be part of it. Really knowing the Word and being grounded in theology, knowing church history, I think helps in discernment. Knowing that what you're seeing has happened before. Knowing how to answer people from both church history and biblical text and theologically, I think is very important. And then being able to, being willing to risk. There's going to be times that you won't, under, you won't, there, there'll be times you won't know certain things as God or not yet. You say, well, how do you know? You, you wait and inspect the fruit. And they end up loving the word, loving God, loving Jesus, loving worship more. The lying signs and wonders, that's a silly thing. Because if in Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians and also in the book of Revelation, I think it's a 13 or 16 chapter, it talks about the lying signs and wonders. It talks about those who could be deceived and everything. But if you look at it, they're, they're in, particularly in the book of Revelation, they, they are trying to get the people, the, the lying signs and wonders, purpose is to get people to stop worshiping the lamb and worship the beast. And so you have a worship test. It's a test of worship. Does this experience cause the people to be more worshiping? You know, does it? There's a doctrinal test. First John, if you deny that these things, if you deny Jesus came in the flesh, this is the spirit of Antichrist. Well, you got the second biggest move in America right now, the fastest growing movement in America is the New Age movement. And it's emphasis. There's one big emphasis in the New Age movement, health and healing. And they do deny that Jesus is a God come in the flesh. And so you got the, sec- you got the biggest movement talking about healing in America and around the world denying the incarnation. But if the people who are praying and seeing people healed and affirming Jesus is the Son of God... They may have some other things wrong, may not get it. If we think you got to get everything of doctrine right before God moves, nobody would be hardly being, being blessed of God because we probably all got some blind spots. So you don't have, you know, that whole thing at miracles is to prove correct doctrine. So if somebody's teaching something that's wrong, that can't be God because some people who are really, really used in, the, in American history for miracles were almost... And almost illiterate. I mean, we, there's people in Mozambique that are raising the dead that can't read the Bible. And they don't know the difference between Adam and John when it happened. I mean, they just didn't know. But they, but they had faith, you know. Um, I think those things are going to be important to pastoring and, and being with a good pastor, you know, talking, having a spiritual father, uh, some, someone you can run things by is going to be important. Okay, 12.06. Time, ran out of time. Maybe I should have started that earlier. Yeah.
No, but I tell you what. On my dissertation out there, uh, I have probably 50 pages of single space sources of different subjects. And they're really, it'll show you both sides, but that'd be a great source. That, 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 that bibliography is, is worth the cost of the thing. And also, I actually, if you want to know about these arguments we're talking about, you know, the study that there's the biblical side. I got a biblical foundation. I got a theological foundation. I have a historical foundation. And those foundational things were written because I believe that these are the things that causes us to, up to a lot of degree, whether or not we see very much happening is in here, what we've been taught. And what we are taught has an effect upon our expectancy. All right, well, thank you very much. Two o'clock sharp, we're going to do uh, impartation. Have a whole sermon on impartation and do it.